this fourth facet of mind is defined this way. The emergent self-organizing, so that's a math property. Where is it? Embodied and relational. What is it? A process that's regulating energy and information flows. Human OS. Learn. Master. Achieve. Welcome back, everybody. Today, I have with me Dr. Dan Siegel. Dr. Siegel is the executive director of the Mindsight Institute, a clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine, and is the founding co-director of the Mindful Awareness Research Center at UCLA. Dan, welcome to Humanoids Radio. And Dan, thank you for having me. Your body of work on the mind is expansive. How would you encapsulate from a 30,000-foot view the nature and goals of your work? The nature and goals of my work, I suppose, from 30,000 feet would be trying to see, number one, if we can actually use the word mind, M-I-N-D, and say what we think it is, not just describe its features, but actually get to the heart of what it is. And two, I suppose, would be to see if there's a way of finding common ground across usually independent ways that we come to understand reality and being human. For example, can we bring all the different fields of science into one framework? And and the field that we try to do that in is called interpersonal neurobiology. And that's different from a field called social neuroscience. And in interpersonal neurobiology, what we try to say is, Wilson points out, there's something called consilience, which is when independent pursuits come up with similar findings, but they did it in their own particular way. You know, we look for the consilience across different fields and then see if we can construct, if you will, a picture of the whole elephant. So we draw on the different blind men's study of the toes and the knees, ears and the trunk and the tail, et cetera. And then we say, gosh, these are all wonderful, wonderful insights. What does the whole elephant look like? That would be the second thing is bringing not just the sciences together, but the arts and poetry and literature and music, and now even contemplative practices, spiritual traditions, wisdom traditions, religion, and seeing if we can build bridges so that we can move humanity and life on earth forward in a positive direction, which I guess the third thing I would say from 30,000 feet is it's all for the goal of finding the mind, bringing different fields together. For the third goal is can we actually move cultural evolution and evolution on earth toward a healthier direction? Beautiful. Interdisciplinary analysis is where you yield the most interesting insights. When different points of view or magisterium identify the same thing from a different angle, and then those two disciplines speak, it's really interesting to me. Yeah, Um, exactly. How did you get into the field that you're in? What drew you to the field of psychiatry in the first place? That's a kind of a long story. I wrote, I read actually the entire book about that one question called Mind, A Journey to the Heart of Being Human. The short version is I was always fascinated with life and was really curious about like, who are we and what are our relationships and what does it mean to be a person and how do we connect with nature and what's well-being. And, you know, I was always literally interested in those things when I was like a kid. So when I became an adolescent and started college, I wanted to get to kind of the deepest study that related to biology. So I studied biochemistry and was looking at enzymatic reactions that allowed fish to produce a substance that would be able to explain why salmon could be hatched in freshwater and survive the transition to saltwater. And I guess I was always interested in how things developed into healthy beings. And at night, while I was working as a biochemistry research undergraduate, I volunteered for a suicide prevention service where we were taught that the emotional attunement 
you had as a listener to what the caller in distress was experiencing could make the difference between whether that person chose to end their life or stay living. And when I went after all that to medical school, I thought that medicine would be a place to bring those two passions together, passion understanding the mechanisms of life and also the mechanisms of health in our relationships. Uh, but I was really, really shocked, actually, and disappointed at how not focused on the internal world of patients my teachers were. So I dropped out for a while and did different things. But when I came back, it was the first time I ever thought about going to psychiatry. And I made up this word mindsight for the human capacity to sense the subjective experience of what goes on inside of you or what goes on inside of people and other bodies. I try to avoid the word self and other than just because I think they're problematic. But anyway, that led me to start pediatrics and then move into psychiatry and ultimately child psychiatry and then research psychiatry. And I became an educator in the field. And that's basically how it all unfolded. And a realization that I have, we will not correctly infer the cause of certain behaviors by looking specifically at biochemistry. And yet it can be incredibly insightful too. You need to juxtapose the two together, behaviors and biochemistry to understand at all. And that just invites a lot of humility and also supporting one another saying, I don't know, but it's fascinating. And can I look at linear mechanism like an enzyme helping a chemical interaction unfold and also look at a larger system like that salmon in a larger ocean that's being polluted by human beings who think they're separate from nature, you know, and right. you look at these separate issues of how the mind starts influencing things that go on or even the amazing thing about how what you do with your mind can change an enzyme telomerase that repairs and maintains the ends of your chromosomes. So this bridge between, you know, our relationships with nature or our relationships with ourselves in terms of consciousness directly affect the molecules of well-being. How would you define the mind? What are all the components that make it up? Well, Dan, that's a great question, and I'm obsessed with it because it's been preoccupying me for the last quarter of a century. The first thing to say that's so curious is when I was trained as a physician, no one talked about what the mind was or really health or anything like that. Or you know, we talked about disease, of course, and symptoms and diagnoses and treatments and things. And then when I entered psychiatry and the broader field of mental health, I was kind of really surprised to find no one said what the mental of mental health was. No one said what the mind was. And, you know, besides your feelings and your thoughts and things like that, but that actually is just a description. It doesn't say what they are. And no one was saying what health was. It was really kind of disorienting, I got to say, to get, you know, board certified as a child and adolescent psychiatrist, as an adult psychiatrist. He has to be the training director in an educational program at UCLA and to feel like no one taught me anything that was actually starting with what the field names itself as the field of mental health. So that's what happened to me in the early 90s, the beginning of the decade of the brain, where I brought like 40 colleagues. They had been my teachers and now I was on the faculty. So I brought them all together, 40, literally 40 academics. And I said, this is the beginning of the decade of the brain. Hippocrates said the mind, your feelings and thoughts and stuff like that, is all just basically what happens in your head. And William James in 1890 said long after 2,500 years ago, Hippocrates said it, you know, that yes, we know the mind is simply brain activity. And William James made incredibly powerful contributions. But that beginning as the grandfather of modern psychology and Hippocrates as the grandfather of modern medicine, set the stage for people to assume that the word mind was a synonym for brain activity. And even to this day, many people yeah. say that actually, they'll, they'll transpose mind for brain as if you're looking like a brain scanner, you're seeing the mind. This was very confusing to me. So in the early 90s, I brought all these academics together and I said, you know, what is the mind and how does it relate, in fact, to the brain in your head? What do you want to start with? And everyone said, let's start with the brain. 
And these were, you know, anthropologists, sociologists, linguists, psychologists, including people studying the brain, psychiatrists, um, chemists, physicists. There was a mathematician in the room. I mean, it was a quite eclectic group of, of mainstream academics. Mm-hmm. Well, people agreed on what the brain was, no problem. A hundred billion neurons, you know, with trillions of connections and mysterious, fantastic organ of the body. It connects with everything going on in the body and controls things. That's fine. Then we got to the mind. And there was no definition short of a neuroscientist in the room saying it's brain activity. Mm-hmm. And that got the anthropologist very agitated and said, what are you saying? Mind happens in culture, not just in your head. Oh, no, it's only in your head. Oh, all these things. So the group was going to disband. And since I invited all these people to the party and they agreed to come one more time during the intervening week, I had to think about like what might be a common thing. I didn't, there was no use of the word consilience. This is now 1992 we're talking about. Consilience was published in 1998. You know, what would be the common ground, what we would now call consilience, that could allow all these different 40 academics to come to some shared view? So it's a long story that I'll just shorten in just a summary form. But basically, it seemed to me that what an anthropologist studied or a sociologist studied or what I'm trained as an attachment researcher, I study parent-child relationships. What we study is relational communication. And the common ground of relational communication to what a brain scientist studies is actually energy flow. So my teacher of neuroscience from medical school, David Hubel, when I was in school in 1981, he won the Nobel Prize. Mm -hmm. And David won the Nobel Prize because he showed that the energy patterns you send into a kitten's brain, depending on the pattern, will alter the way that brain develops. So maybe it was just natural for me being trained this way. But for me, the common ground of the brain in your head was that it was about energy flow. And what we study in relational communication is energy flow. You know, it's a different form and a different location, if you will. So I thought, well, what's the system that could be energy flow that happens both within your body, and that would include the brain in your head, of course, and that happens within your relationships, the betweenness. And the mathematics of that is that it's what you would call a complex system. And that complex system is defined by a number of features, but the three main ones to think about are that you're open to influences from outside yourself, so open. Mm. You're capable of being chaotic, so chaos capable. And the third, and for some mathematicians, the most important one is your what's called nonlinear. And that means like a small input at one initial time leads to a relatively large and difficult to predict outcome. Mm. So that's nonlinear. And, you know, when you think about humans, we are nonlinear, chaos-capable, open systems. Anyway, so I did some reading and thought, well, if the mind has something to do with energy flow, maybe it's what complex systems theory says that you have emergent properties, that the flowing of the elements of the complex system give rise to something like the shape of a cloud, for example, for water molecules and air molecules. So I thought, what if the mind were an emergent property, yes, of energy flow in your head, but maybe it was fully embodied, not just in skull, and maybe the mind itself could be an emergent property of relational energy flow, which is certainly what happens in psychotherapy or in attachment relationships, that's what we study. Mm. Then I thought, okay, well, it could be that, you know, subjective experience and consciousness and information processing, the classic things people use as descriptions, they don't usually use the word energy, but maybe those are all emergent properties of energy flow. But then a fourth facet of mind came up, and this is what came up, fortunately, in time to go for the next group, Mm. was when you look at the mathematics of complex systems, there's not only emergent properties, but there's also one particular emergent property, which is the self-organizing 
emergent property of complex systems, which is very counterintuitive because it's arising from the stuff of the system. And then it turns and it regulates the very stuff from which it continues to emerge. So it's really weird and intuitively so, yeah, self-organization. But it's a proven property of complex systems in this universe. So I thought, well, if we're in this universe and there is energy flow and it's happening both in a human body and brain, and of course, animals have minds also, but let's just stay with humans. You could say, wow, maybe this fourth facet of mind is defined this way. The emergent self-organizing, so that's a math property. Where is it? Embodied and relational. What is it? A process that's regulating energy and information flow. So I wrote down that definition when I was doing this reading of the math, came back to the next meeting, said, okay, before we get started, I want to share a possible place that we might consider beginning as a working definition. We can throw it out next week if we choose to keep on meeting. I recited the definition I just said, the self-organizing, emergent, embodying relational process that regulates the flow of energy and information. We went around voting around the table. I'll never forget this my whole life. 40 out of 40 people agreed that though it's not a definition they'd ever heard of or ever used or anything like that, it fit with what they were doing with their life's work. And the group went on to meet for four and a half years. Wow. And it taught me the power of trying to find common ground so that we could move forward. And it was an incredibly educational, collaborative group that was the birth of interpersonal neurobiology back in 1992. Your story reminds me of a favorite quote of mine, the beginning of wisdom is the definition of terms by Socrates. You have to define what you are working on in order to use that as a basis for development. And if there's a loose foundation, then I think you probably would have led to a fracturing of that group and people going their own ways. So congratulations for you to coming up with that. That was a defining moment, I would say. Literally, was that, was that a pun? A defining moment. <laughs> <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> it's so funny you say that because some cognitive scientists have a beautiful way of thinking about the mind as is going from categories it presumes or divisions in the world to concepts as a way of you know organizing information to symbols, these linguistic packets like words that we're defining. Mm. So what you're saying then, uh, one way of interpreting it is, if we are using linguistic symbols, words, that don't really have a, a solid foundation in concepts and infer certain presumed categories, the whole thing could be built on you know, a faulty structure. And this definition of the mind from 1992 led to the writing of the, a book called The Developing Mind. And, you know, I thought it was going to be shot down and ripped apart, whatever, because it was making just hypotheses. But then when the second edition came out, you know, 12 years later, I brought a group of about a dozen interns together. And I said, you know, I want you to demonstrate with just one research paper that what was said in the first edition is wrong. And they go, you mean, right, you misspoke, you mean, right? I said, no, 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 no. Just find one paper, just one, that goes against these different statements in that first book. Well, they could basically find nothing but support. And that was a long time ago. Now, I've had 18 interns with me on the revision into the third edition with the same assignment. They, again, could not find even one paper to go against it, even though people still don't talk like this. And this third edition is so fun because now there's a ton of empirical support. For example, one of the implications of saying the mind is the self-organizing emergent process is that you can say, well, how do you optimize self-organization? And the way you do that can be seen as kind of like a river of harmony that has these certain qualities of, it spells the word faces, it's flexible, adaptive, coherent is the math term for resilient over time, energized and stable. So it's like a flow of a river. And when you're out of that flow, you go to either a bank of chaos 
on the one hand or Bank of Rigidity on the other. That's just math I'm talking about. So that explains the whole field of psychiatry. Every symptom of every syndrome can be reinterpreted as chaos, rigidity, or both. So then the question came up back in 92, and this was all first emerging, was, gosh, how do you optimize self-organization to achieve that faces flow of harmony? And the answer is you link differentiated parts. Now, math doesn't have a name for that, so I just called it integration, defined very clearly as a complex system as differentiated or made different or allowed to be special or unique, different parts to it then become linked. And the crucial thing for integration defined this way is you don't lose the differentiated qualities as you link. So it's more like a, a fruit salad than a smoothie. Mm -hmm. And as you look at integration this way, this was the hypothesis in the 90s. Now we're like 27 years later. What you see is every study of every psychiatric disorder, amazingly, my interns couldn't find an exception to this, shows impaired integration in the brain. Every form of regulation, like regulating attention, emotion, mood, thought, behavior, morality, depends on integration in the brain. And when you look at what, let's say, developmental trauma, like abuse and neglect cause, they cause impairments to integration in the brain. These are all published in peer-reviewed journals of the highest caliber. And then you find that if you look at the 2015 Smith et al. paper on the connectome and its interconnections is the way to say it. The connectome is a word for the subtly differentiated areas and how they're linked. So it's basically a study of integration, both functional and structural. When you look at every measure of well-being, in that study, Smith et al., 2015, every measure of well-being they could find was predicted by just one brain state. And it was the state of integration, basically how connected the connectome was. And then if you look at what mindfulness practices do, or what are called three pillar practices, you know, developing focused attention, open awareness, and kind intention or compassion, those all integrate the brain. So amazingly, well-being is associated with integration. In fact, we say integration is the source of well-being. And that can be either in your brain, in your head, the way your brain communicates with your heart, your brain with your whole body. You can look at relational integration in a romance, in a parent-child relationships, in a family, in a school classroom, in a school as a whole, in an organization, in a nation. You can look at a whole planet. So in climate change issues, we would see the chaos and rigidity that is arising now as related to the excessive differentiation of the human mind by thinking there's a separate self and that humans are not a fundamental interconnected part of nature. That excessive differentiation impairs the integration of humanity with life on earth. And what results is not the flowing of harmony, but the emergence of chaos and rigidity that we're sadly just beginning to see unfold. And if we don't do something about it, it will get more chaotic and more rigid. In your definition of a complex system, you mentioned open to influences from the outside, chaos capable, nonlinear, small inputs can lead to large changes. If you wouldn't mind for a moment digging into chaos capable, what does that mean? Well, have you ever had a day where you just couldn't get yourself organized and things were like scattered all over the place and hard to deal with the random things were just happening? You mean Monday? It's Mondays? Yeah. yeah. Or like my morning this morning. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like I got up at 6 30 grade. I'm going to go to the gym. I got to give a lecture at nine and I'll do this and this and this. Next thing I know, it's like 10 to nine. And I go, whoa, that was a chaotic morning. Like nothing. Yeah, like that. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> and rigid would be where you feel depleted, depressed, and stagnant. Things aren't moving and like that. We could go through the whole diagnostic Bible, you know, the psychiatric DSM, even though it's got lots of problems to it, or the ICD, you know, however you describe stuff, human suffering, I mean, just to talk about the human condition, can be seen as chaos or rigidity. It emerges with impaired integration. 
And, you know, my interns, these 18 wonderful, wonderful young people who are working with me, what they find kind of confusing, and I find it confusing too, is this has been something I've been writing about for a quarter of a century, and basically no one takes it up. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting, even though when you do the consilience approach of looking at all these different fields and you can see it emerge. So it's exciting because it may be the untapped perspective, let's say, of bringing environmental scientists together with people working in the mental health field, together with people working in the education field. I do this with two of my MIT colleagues, Otto Sharmer and Peter Senge. We, we work with something called generative social fields you know, really trying to teach systems thinking to kids oh, and to adults. Because part of the problem, and this is just a fascinating issue, part of the problem is, and E.O. Wilson in the middle of like page 51 or 52 or something, in this beautiful book, The Meaning of Human Existence, I give you the page because you might want to find the quote. And I just give you the page, not because I'm like a page memorizer, <laughs> but because uh, I just used this in something I was writing. And so I know the page number, I may as well share it with you. He basically says, look, he goes, the thing about the meaning of human existence is that we rely primarily on the auditory channel and the visual channel. Unlike other animals kind of immersed in this soup of chemicals that they can sense and that influence them in a very profound way. Mm. We're more of a visual and auditory channel. Now, those two channels can give you the perceptual illusion that we're separate. Like, Dan, you're over there. I'm over here because we're talking to each other with sound. Or if we're in the room together, you use your eyes and say, oh, Dan is there and the other Dan's over here. So it's interesting. And he goes on in a very profound way to say, look, this sensory limitation of being human, when we were few in number, wasn't that big a deal. You know, we can make fires here and there and then move to another place, whatever, around the campfire kind of thing. But now that we're 7 billion and growing larger... This perceptual illusion of being separate from nature is not going to fly, he says, basically. It's going to kill us all. So when you combine that with some of the amazing findings in physics, I mean, looking for consilience, where, you know, we have two realms that I've now asked a ton of different groups, and it's usually about 1% are aware that their physics has revealed there are two realms. In one realm, things are like nouns. They're like entities that are separate from one another and they can interact, of course, but they move along a timeline and there's what's called an arrow of change. And that's called the Newtonian realm because Isaac Newton kind of figured this all out. And that classical physics or Newtonian realm, because it's about large objects, is called the macrostate realm. Well, we also know that there are another set of equations for small things, microstates, that in the last 100 years, unlike Newtonian, which is 350 years old, in the microstate world of quantum, quanta is a unit of energy, which is a probability field. In this world, there are no entities per se, there are events. And these events are like verbs that are deeply interconnected. So in one realm, the microstate quantum realm, we have established in science the verb-like interconnected nature of things. Whereas at the same time, macrostates, consolidation, remember E equals MC squared, mass is a consolidation of energy. So these consolidations of energy called macrostates, they have this noun-like appearance of being separate entities you know, that are not really interconnected. They interact, but they're not interconnected. So whether it's the biological vulnerability of our sensory limitations that E.O. Wilson beautifully and powerfully reminds us of, and it could, doesn't have to be or, and it's also this fact that we live in large bodies. I have a practice called the wheel of awareness where people can swim between the two realms. You can go between the noun-like world of entities and the verb-like world of events that are deeply interconnected. 
in this practice. And um, we just did a week doing this. And what's fascinating about it is you can learn, just like if you swim in the pool, you can learn to raise your head above the water and breathe in air and then go beneath the surface of the water and be submerged in the water realm and sometimes in the air realm. No one freaks out. Here's what my concern is. I think the separate self, that word self and the concept beneath it, oh, there's a self that lives in this body or a self as humans and the category, oh, there's us and them or you know, we other everything. All those categories, concepts and linguistic symbols are creating an impairment to integration on the planet that is building on whether it's the biological reality of it or the physics reality of it or both. It's building on this noun-like separate self entity that's profoundly disconnected. So we're no longer linked. We're so differentiated in the way the mind and culture reinforcing that mind propensity. The mind is creating the what Einstein called the optical delusion of consciousness of a separate self. And he urged us to widen our circles of compassion. Well, those circles need to also dissolve this notion of a separate self because we're not just in a body. Yes, the body's important, but we're also relational. So one thing, a group I'm working with is the linguistic symbol that integrates identity with me plus we. So you have an inner mind, if you will, that's me or I, and you have a relational mind, an intermind that's us or we. And to integrate them, you don't want to lose the features of either one. You want to link them together. So for a first go, we're using the word we, M-W-E. And what's been so fascinating about it is it one little three-letter word in English, at least, we're getting it in different languages, you're able to encapsulate mm. how you need to take care of the health of your individual body, but that your identity is much broader than the brain and bigger than your body. And that identity is also, not instead, but also a we, and you integrate that as a we. Many questions have arisen from what you've just said. One comment in my recent conversation with Dr. Sheila Patel from the Chopra Center, she had a saying, I am that, that is me. It's a practice people go through to try to identify the connectedness versus the division between our physical selves and that around us. Beautiful. What grade would you give our schooling system for developing this critical skill that helps us traverse the world? Well, Dan, these are great questions. It's so interesting. This morning, I just came from a school that's asked me to kind of work with them to shape these things. And it's a pre-K through 12th grade. Mm -hmm. So to start with the first thing, I would say that young children know this on a deep level. They know it. And whether it's culture or the curriculum of most schools, it's taught out of us, you know. And so bringing that systems view, we realize I am a fundamental part of a system. I do have a body of me and I do have a systems identity. It's a we and I am a we, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. You know, you can start in preschool and just talk about it. And that's all. It's not a big deal. You know, you are both your body and you are your relationships with other people on the planet. So I think it can be done early on, you know, in the books I write for parents, I, I do a number of parenting books with Tina Payne Bryson and others. We're always emphasizing how parents are the first teachers and their opportunity to teach this relational integrated identity begins early on, you know, with how you approach the way we view nature and the impact of what we do on other species and, you know, taking care to be very aware and mindful of that. So it can start very early on and the cultural piece of it is conference called Wisdom 2.0. I talk about this and you can watch those videos. But the point is, I think you can do this with very young people, with people in high school. You can do this with people at work. It's a win-win-win thing. And what are all those wins about? Number one, it's just the truth of who we are. 
as Einstein called it, the optical delusion of consciousness. He didn't even use the word illusion. Mm. He used the word delusion, which means a psychotic belief, a belief that's not consistent with reality. So we have to wake up from this psychotic belief that we're separate. And I don't think it's going to take that long to do it. And I think it's actually one of the most crucial transformative things we need to do for humanity to change what we've done. We've tried out an experiment of living with the mental construction of a separate self, and it's failed. It's absolutely failed. We still have time to bounce back from the failure of this attempt to live as a separate self. And now what we need to do is realize we can be an integrated self. And it doesn't mean getting rid of, you know, your internal world or taking care of to sleep well or feed your body well or exercise. And, you know, it just means that relationships become equally important in our identity, relationships with other people, people who are not like you, as well as people who are like you, and species that are not your species. You're a part of a larger living system called life on earth. So I think we can do this. And so that's one win. I think it's going to help because people dissolve the delusion. That's one win. The second win is every research study shows that your health is actually going to be improved. The length of time you live will be improved. Your happiness will be improved. You know, you're in the health business, by the way, is medical and mental health. So those well-being factors will be improved when we just identify relationships as an equal part of your identity as your individual life. So that's a second win. The third win is that when you look at what we are capable of as collaborative, creative, connecting human beings, when we see the good that's in people, we can realize, I think, a different way of relating to one another and a different way of relating to earth. And the win there, this third win, is that earth, I really believe on some deep level, life on earth is waiting for humans to come to the next phase in our cultural evolution and say, yes, you know, we have 50 million years, most likely of tribalism and in group, out group things. And people might say, how can you say 50 million when humans are only around a few hundred thousand years? Because Stephen Swamy and I were talking about this the other day, in our primate evolution, from probably about 50 million years ago, we were doing this in-group, out-group stuff. It's not just humans that do it. Yeah. We need to be aware of that, rise above that. We also do this with other species. We act like, oh, they're, they're not worth anything because they're not human or something. So all these ways that we other, and John Powell writes powerfully about othering, all these ways that we other, we need to rise above that. I think Earth is waiting for the human mind, now that we've defined what it is, to enter a different phase of self-organization, to realize, oh, I see, it's not just about this body or this brain and this head. It's about really being an integrated part of a whole system of life on earth. And thank goodness humans have done that. And there is a path to help humanity do that. And I think we can do it not in over many, many generations. We actually don't have time to do it mm -hmm. that slowly. We can do this more rapidly. And you know, that's a whole another talk we can have, but how to do it. But it's kind of what you're saying, raising children this way, teaching kids in school this way, reminding people who run corporations, you know, that this is actually a win-win-win thing. And that when consumers know this and people who are in the production business know this, everyone's going to benefit. And it's going to turn into, I think we can make this a big, big turning of what humanity can see as its role in this journey and what this transformative way of seeing the self can be when we realize we can be an integrated self. I have a tattoo that has a saying, if Pakea survived the Burgess decimation, and it's from a book, Wonderful Life from Stephen Jay Gould. He writes about this Cambrian fossil from hundreds of millions of years ago. And in this one quarry, there was all this life. 
There was one called Hallucigenea. It had eight eyeballs down its back. I mean, it, it seemed like life was just playing with forms. Pacaea was very simple. It had dorsal rigidity, and he thought it might have had the first backbone. So the idea is romantic. But if it had survived the Burgess decimation, it might have given rise to vertebrates. And to me, it's a reminder of the connectedness with all life forms, as simple as they might be, even if it's a little flatworm that you could accidentally step on in a creek, that I am that, that is me. Totally. And, uh, no, no, I am that. And you know, we are that, you know, absolutely. Yeah. I, it's beautiful. I love your nine domains of integration, consciousness, bilateral, vertical, memory, narrative, state, interpersonal, temporal, identity. And this last one is identity integration. I think I was once asked to speak at an environmental policy conference. And I said, I think you have the wrong Dan here. They said, no, 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 we want you. And I said, well, what have you tried? And they said, oh, we've tried to inform people, but it hasn't helped. And I said, what else have you done? They said, I think we tried to scare people. It hasn't helped. I said, well, what else can you do? And they go, we don't know. That's why you're here. And I go, oh my God, you know, you scared them. It didn't help. You informed them. It didn't help. I said, I guess you, well, I guess you've just got to try to help them transform. And this simple idea to go from me to me, M-W-E, I know it sounds simple, but it may be actually a simple thing that's needed. And it may not be easy. That's the thing, because there's a lot pushing everyone to separation. There's a lot of evolutionary history. There's a whole sensory reliance on audio and visual channels that Wilson talks about. There's the physics issue that we live in these macro state bodies that give us the thing, the view that it's just about separate nouns. But, you know, yes, we have a noun that is a body and you want to walk the body carefully across the street at a green light, but you also are a verb. And so learning to also live like a verb not favoring verbs over nouns, but these verbs are unfolding events. And then you realize, wow, I am that flatworm. I am the sunset, you know? Mm. This is all this incredible privilege of being alive and honoring life is all we're asking that we do. It sounds like a lot of this knowledge that you've been working on, writing about, creating terms for, models for, it sounds like we need to develop skills that help us implement that. We is a good one. What are some other skills that humans can develop that help us continue to take care of the individual body so it doesn't get hit by the car, but is constantly relating to that around us so that we are making better decisions? The first domain you mentioned, the integration of consciousness, has in that area a practice called the wheel of awareness. And just done this now with 47,000 people in person. The first 10,000, I would have people pass a microphone around or write notes and say what they experienced. And, and that survey reveals that when you put awareness of consciousness, the knowing, like if I say, good afternoon, Dan, you know, you have both the good afternoon, Dan, as something on the rim of this wheel, in this case, sound, and you know it through hearing, but the experience of knowing called awareness we put in the hub. And I talk about this in a book called Aware. And we have this wheel of awareness practice on our website. We've had a lot of people you know, stream this and do it. So we get a lot of feedback about it in addition to the ones I do it with in person. And that hub of knowing that I said, good afternoon, that metaphoric hub, it looks like there's a possible scientific explanation for the origin of consciousness. Now I say possible because it could be completely wrong, but you'll see it described in great detail in Aware in a hundred pages. So here I can't really talk about it. I mean, I, I could, but it would be going for a few hours. But the bottom line is, if the proposal is true, and again, it could be completely wrong, but if it's true, then here's the simple thing I'll say in terms of what tools can we use. When people do this kind of practice, there are other ways of doing it, but here we're talking about the wheel. When people distinguish the knowing of awareness from the knowns of things that you're aware of, like sounds or sights or whatever, 
you start to, I think, move from this realm of separate noun-like things, even a thought or a memory or an emotion comes and goes like an entity. You know, it has these qualities in the, if you will, the Newtonian, you know, macrostate world. But then when you get in the hub, this is what's so rewarding about doing these workshops is you see it right in front of you where it isn't that someone heard a lecture and they go, oh, yes, I heard, I understood what you said. You'd have them do the wheel as a practice. They bend this spoke of attention around them. They've been moving around the wheel and around the rim. And then you have them bend it into the hub or just retract it or leave it in the hub or have no spoke at all and just drop into the hub. And just to give you an example, you know, I did this once in a parliament in another country and people started sharing, you know, after they did the practice and then we had a break for a snack. During the snack break, one of the parliamentarians comes up and he goes, Dan, you know, I didn't share. And I said, I noticed that. He goes, do you want to know why I didn't share? And I say, yeah, I actually, I would love to know why you didn't share. He goes, and then he gets really quiet and he says it really slowly, but I'll say it more quickly just for time. He goes, you know the part when you bend the spoke around and you're just in the hub? And I said, yeah, I know that part. He says, I have never felt so much love before in my life. I felt connected to everyone and everything. And I said, so you didn't want to share that? He goes, oh, no, no, no. And he points over to his colleague and he goes, they would think I was weak. I talked about love and connection Mm. and there's silence. And I look at him, I said, so let me ask you a question. When you're forming federal law, when you're making national policy, do you leave love out of the reasoning? Mm. And then he kind of stares at me and his eyes get really big and his finger starts wagging at me and he runs over to his parliamentarian colleagues and I don't know what they said, but you would only hope he would say, you know, love is the strongest thing. We are deeply interconnected. And he told me later on, you know, that that shift in perspective, you could call it an insight, if you will, is much bigger than just someone telling you some words. And, you know, this has happened everywhere I go doing these workshops because someone will have this incredible feeling, someone who's never meditated or done this kind of thing or thought about this kind of thing in their life, they will have this feeling that within the hub of awareness, there's love and interconnection as if there are three threads of a singular tapestry of life. Mm -hmm. And whatever we can do, and the wheel is cool because it has all these other things that help you in your medical health and all those stuff, but because it has these three pillars built into it. But if people can just have the experience themselves of seeing the shift in identity to this we... I have great hope for us, from us as a human family, that when we get our act together, we're going to be able to do this. You know, we can do this. And I think it is a matter, just like you're saying, Dan, of giving people the tools so that they're not stuck in this optical delusion of consciousness of being separate. And we realize the deeply interconnected nature of who we are. For the audience to find different pieces of your work, You've got courses online, you do workshops, you've got videos. Where would you direct them? If the wheel of awareness is something you want to check into for free, you can go to our website, Dr. Dan Siegel, D-R-D-A-N, and then Siegel, S-I-E-G-E-L.com. And then just click through Mindsight Practices, and then there's the Wheel of Awareness, and there's a few different ones. If you've never meditated before, start slow with the beginning one and then move your way up. If you want instruction, the Aware book, all my books are on audio also, But the Aware book is a good place to start. It walks you step by step on the science and practice of presence. Um, There's a ton of books. I mean, I've written a dozen books. And so Aware would be good for that. Mind is good if you just want like a set of unfolding stories of how all these ideas came together. Mm. If you're interested in 
Adolescence Brainstorm is a cool book if you're like a science-focused person, want just science, The Developing Mind, which will be out in its third edition next year. You know, that would be a good book to dive into. If you're a clinician, Mindsight is for actually the general public about clinical cases, The Mindful Therapist, those would be good books. And, you know, there's a pocket guide, there's all sorts of things that I've written. And then, you know, there's all these parenting books that I wrote with Tina Payne Bryson. We have a new one coming out in January, The Power of Showing Up, which is a summary of how to apply the attachment research literature to everyday parenting. And then other books like The Yes Brain, No Drama Discipline, Whole Brain Child, that I wrote with Tina and Parenting from the Inside Out with Mary Hartzell. And then I've edited, I'm the series editor for over 75 textbooks written by other people mostly in the Norton series on interpersonal neurobiology. So if you're a clinician, especially it's a clinician series, it's a very large mental health series of interpersonal neurobiology. We literally have that many books. So there's wonderful, wonderful books about the process of psychotherapy and how to understand it through various aspects of science. And anyway, so those are just some thoughts. And, you know, we have online all sorts of things, videos you can watch for free, immersive courses you can take. There's all sorts of stuff. So if you want to learn more, there's a big, big range of resources that is available to you. That's great. DrDanSiegel.com has a list of the videos, the books, everything. So people can go there to dig in a little bit more, find maybe a starting place for them. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, it's a community, basically. I mean, interpersonal neurobiology is housed here at the Mindsight Institute. And, you know, you'll go from Dr. Dan Siegel to mindsightinstitute.com. And that's basically their interconnected websites. But the point is, you know, we have a community of people who are asking these questions. What is the mind and what can we do with our minds to help life on earth? And that's really what we're all about. So come join us. Well, Dan, thank you so much for all the work that you've done, taking the time here. Beautiful. Well, thank you, Dan. Thanks for listening and come visit us soon at humanos.me.